We've been in our FAQ series. This is week three, week one. The topic was this question, is there more to life than this? Then week two, we talked about who is Jesus? And then today we're gonna talk about this question, why did Jesus die? Now don't assume that you have the great depth of this question answered because scripture is littered with great and deep revelation about this topic. In fact, when you look at Old Testament to New, and you look at how much emphasis was put by the prophets in the Old Testament, and the symbolism in the Old Testament, and in the plain epistles, and the writings, and the gospels, and in the book of Revelation itself, on the meaning of Jesus' death, <laughs> there's a lot to learn. And I do wanna say this because I know these seem like basic topics, but we're, what we're doing is we're using the Sunday to go a little deeper. And as I was preparing for this, it's one of those subjects that is so meaningful to me because I remember the day that I experienced going from life to death. Can anybody remember when you received Christ and you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? And, and maybe you're here today and you don't, you don't have that experience, I hope today that maybe the Lord speaks to you and shows you how much he loves you and that you understand there's an invitation extended to you. But this means a lot to me because I remember distinctly when I got a revelation of Jesus on the cross and when I got this understanding that man, he, he died, he died for me so that I could have life and I was searching for life in so many different places. You know, tried to find it at the bottom of a, of a bottle. And like Chris Stapleton said, the bottom of the bottle, it's always dry. I don't know if you know anything about no Chris Stapleton up in here. Apparently nobody does. It's a new school country. He's got a great voice. Anyways, let's not use sermon time for secular artists, Dave. Let's move on. But I did feel like the Lord dropped a gold bar on me in this study. Anybody want to get a little shaving of that gold bar, a little gold dust up in here, a little something, something? Okay. We're just going to hope that we walk away with something of treasure. So we're going to spend the first part of this message in kind of a Bible clinic, and then we're going to drop the boom like a dubstep beat. Is that another music reference no one knows about? Never mind. Okay. Let's set this up. We're going to go through scripture after scripture and then lead to this big treasure. When it comes to death, we don't normally ponder any deeper meaning behind someone's death when we're at a funeral. We might ponder maybe if we don't know them or there's a mystery involved, like what was the cause of death? Uh, we might really ponder the life they lived. I mean, that's kind of what funerals are. It's, it's more of a celebration of life. And when we think about, even, especially a, a decent person, somebody that was a good guy, good gal, and they lived their life for positive things. We might be touched or inspired, not necessarily by their death, but by the life they le lived. And the death part or the funeral is, is the exclamation point or that final farewell that makes us kind of compact all the highlights and the wonderful things and the qualities that we saw in them and we walk away with maybe an appreciation. But when it comes to most people, 
we're not adding or trying to ponder anything truly deep. Maybe if somebody died heroically or somebody died horrifically, there's more questioning and more pondering. Or sometimes we look at some of the greatest movies, Braveheart, and you look at those who had given their lives. You know, when you look at uh, the life of Martin Luther King Jr., you know, somebody died. What were the cause they died for? Did they die for a conviction? And so maybe there's some meaning there. But what I want to say is that when it comes to the death of Jesus, his death, and how we ponder the meaning of that death, it is far greater than any other person that has ever died. And Jesus' death is proof. It's a testament to the life and the ministry that he lived and what those things declared him to be. And his death also carries eternal ramifications like no other person who has ever lived and died. Jesus, also his death, we know that was, it was connected to his life. His death doesn't mean as much if we didn't get the 33 years of his life, especially his last three in ministry. And his death doesn't really mean as much if we don't have a resurrection afterwards, but when it comes to simply the death of Christ, there's so much that stands by itself, sandwiched in between his life and his resurrection, that it's worth diving into and gleaning some faith lessons from. So why did Jesus die? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 is probably where most Christians would give the answer. This is what we would understand. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. Raise your hand if you believe that Christ died for our sins. That's the basic answer, but what does that really mean? What does it mean that Christ died for our sins? Does that mean that like he felt sorry for us, so he hung on the cross? What does it really mean that he died for our sins? And who is the our? Who does that include? Is that every single person? Is everyone included in the death of Jesus? What does it mean that Jesus was punished? What does it mean that he took the whips? What does it mean that he was speared in the side and blood and water flowed? Does it mean that every person is totally forgiven the, the minute he says it is finished? Or did that happen when he resurrected? You'd be surprised that even in a church setting amongst believers that have been following Jesus for many years, there is some confusion about the real purpose and the real meaning behind his death. What would have happened if Jesus didn't die? Was there a plan B? It, was there another way? Or what, if, what about this? Why did it have to be Jesus? Couldn't it have been somebody else that died? Why him? And then what's the big deal about sin? Hey, don't we all make mistakes? Haven't we all kind of fallen short? I get it, like for Hitler, he was carrying a big load of sin. And I could understand that like, if, if somebody needed to die for somebody's sin, then Hitler's sin would have required the death of the Son of God on the cross. But, but what about the grandmother in here? You know, that her greatest sin in the last 10 years is, you know, saying darn or, you know, and she really meant another word, but she sinned in her mind. Or maybe she skipped church and watched Jerry Springer, right? Did, did Jesus really need to die for that? I'm not saying watching Jerry Springer's a sin. I'm just saying it's probably not an act of righteousness, okay? 
but I mean, come on. I mean, I'm not that big of a sinner. And so like, yeah, I've, I've had some lustful thoughts or yeah, I was going to have one beer and I had two and I, I maybe crossed that biblical line of do not be drunk. And maybe I, I lost my temper. I didn't say words, but I was, I was cold hearted and I acted cold with my body language. Does that really require the death of Jesus? I mean, come on. Is that, is that really that big of a deal? I'm a good person. Well, here's what the Bible says. 1 John 3, 4. Whoever sins is guilty of breaking God's law because sin is a breaking of the law. Okay, if that's the case, and whoever sins is guilty of breaking God's law, who then would be guilty of breaking God's law by sin? Raise your hand in here if you've committed a sin. Come on, hold them up high. A sin you've, you've stole. Ray Comfort does a, a, a great thing on this and if you get a chance to watch it, he just goes through the Ten Commandments and he basically asks, have you ever had a lustful thought? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever lied? You know, what does that make you? If you told one lie, that makes you a liar. If you've lusted after a woman in your heart, right, or a man, uh, it makes you an adulterer. Bible's, Jesus kind of raised the bar and he said, no longer do I say, don't just commit adultery, but if you lust after a woman in your heart. So like we've all sinned, so guess what? Whether you sinned a little bit or you sinned a lot, Every single person in here, you are a lawbreaker. In the eyes of God, you have broken his law. Now, what's the big deal about that? What if I only broke little laws? Well, Romans 3.10 says this, just in case you still think you're the one person in here that can't remember um, if you've sinned or not, okay? You must not be married. You must not be around anyone who tells you the truth, okay? As it is written, Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. Everybody say, not even one. That means you. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Say, everybody. So everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It is his perfection. Meaning that Okay, here's the law. Well, I mean, again, some people make this argument all the time. Well, I don't necessarily agree with God's law because I haven't done anything major. Let me say it like this. There are some countries you go to and they have laws in that country that we don't have. For instance, there are some countries straight up, if you steal something, you get your hand chopped off. Do you know this? Like that's actually a punishment. Guess who has a greater percentage of stealing, that country or us? It's us, just FYI. Because the consequences for stealing here are not as high. So in that country, it doesn't matter if you steal a $15,000 Rolex watch or you steal a pack of bubble gum. Either one, the law is, requires that your hand gets lopped off. That's just how the law works. We may not agree with God's law, but the issue is, is that God, he is holy, he is perfect, he's our creator. We were made by him, we were made for him. And his law is perfect, right? Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill the law. And whether we like it or not, his law is his law. And if we break it, even if we don't think it's that bad, we have become lawbreakers and we have become sinful in his sight. And it just said here that there's not one person who will ever be born. If they live like, I believe that children have to hit some type of age of accountability because the Bible says, he who knows to do right and does not to him that sin. But check this out. James 2.10 says this, for whoever keeps the whole law 
and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So what does this mean? There's a few things that we can learn from this. And again, this is just the clinic. Then we're going to let Jesus pull his power move here in a minute. That means that like, this is where we, we've got to be careful that we don't like judge other people according to ranking because the Bible says that if you have broken 99% of God's law, you're still guilty of breaking all of it. If you've broken 1% of God's law, just a little bit, you're still guilty of breaking all the law. Because for a holy God who is totally perfect and his standard is absolute perfection, the way he created Adam and Eve was to walk in innocence. They were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were not to know sin. They were to walk beautifully and innocently before God where there'd be unbroken union, there'd be no separation, but the day they ate of that, their eyes were opened and she saw when she ate of this fruit, she saw sin in a different way and she saw God in a twisted way and we were born with this DNA, this propensity to sin. And the Bible says here, little sinner or big sinner, you are all just as guilty when it comes to being in relationship and connection with God. The little sinners are just as separated from the Lord and just as doomed to eternal damnation and hell as the big sinners are. Can I get an amen if you believe God's word? Okay. Now I know it's tough to clap for that. Like, amen, we're all going to hell. Right? <laughs> I know that's tough. That was, that was a good attempt. Uh, I appreciate the support. But yes, like God's word is perfect. Now check this out. So... In the eyes of God, who, whose holy standard to make heaven our home is total perfection, little law-breaking makes you a lawbreaker. period. And this kills the argument that, you know what, because I'm a good person, God will let me in. Because I treat people kind and I'm a good citizen and I pay my taxes and I don't cheat and I stay late at work and I show up early and I do kind deeds. Listen, our own righteousness is as filthy rags. It doesn't do anything outside of a relationship with Christ and the righteousness he gives us, okay? This is, a, this is an argument that you'll, you'll see in Ray Comfort just does a great job. I'll give him the credit for it, but he, he says, listen, some people bank on the mercy of God without considering his justice. We had a great discussion at our alpha table and we talked about, is God more loving? Is Jesus more loving or is he more just? Is he more of a judge or more of a forgiver? Is he more about truth or more about grace? And it was a great discussion. But what it all boils down to is that Jesus Christ is 100% truth and 100% grace. Okay, so let's say, you know, one of your family members was attacked or killed by somebody. And this guy's on the loose. He gets arrested. He stands before the judge. And the judge, you're in there. You're waiting for the trial. You're waiting for justice. And He's committed five crimes the same way. And the, and the judge says, you know what? I know you broke the law. I know this is what the law says. I know here's the punishment. You should get the death penalty. But I'm, I'm a big hearted judge. And so I'm going to let you go free. You can go home now. As the person who was sinned against and your family was victimized, you're going to say, where is justice? That's not a good judge. He's not doing his job. God has to be just but he's also merciful, right? So we have this dilemma. 
We have this dilemma with sin, like God has to punish sin or he's not just. But he provides a way of mercy because he is loving and he wants to show mercy because mercy triumphs over justice. Okay, but this is the reason that Jesus died. This leads up to why it's so important for us to understand this. So we get into this question then, what is the consequence for sin? Okay, let me just see again. Raise your hand if you have sinned. So little or big, here's what the Bible says the consequence is for every single person in this room. Isaiah 59, 2 says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. Is anyone depressed yet? Can I get an amen? Okay. Now this is deep. This is heavy stuff. Here's what the word separated means. It's badal in the Hebrew, and it means divided, severed, to make distinction between, like clean and unclean, holy and profane, light and dark. And somebody say, well, well God is love then. But if, if God's love, then won't he just forgive my sin if, if I just ask? We have a problem. You can ask, but our sin separates us from God and he doesn't hear the prayer of a sinner. Now, I know this sounds weird. Reading the New Testament, Jesus has the same argument. He's about to heal a guy. And the Jews are like, hey, we all know this. God doesn't hear the prayer of sinners. Who's the, who, whose prayer does he hear? He hears the prayer of the humble and the righteous. What prayer is that? It's the prayer of a sinner that acknowledges God as the source of mercy. It's the prayer of surrender. It's the prayer of acknowledging that we are in the state we are and Jesus or God was our only hope. And for the Jew who were the covenant people of God, God heard their prayer, but guess what? He had to hear their prayer and he dwelt with them and he worked with them only within a system of animal sacrifice there had to be bloodshed for them to even be able to communicate and interact with God. And so this leads, again, we're just in the clinic right now, but this leads to this next passage. So if, if we're all separated from him and he doesn't hear our prayer, unless there is a mediator or unless there's a sacrifice to remove the barrier and to cleanse us of our sin, here's what Hebrews 9.22 says. According to the law, in fact, nearly everything must be purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Again, even God's people, Israel, had to have a system where animals were sacrificed, but even the blood of goats, bulls, or lambs, it didn't wash the people's sin away. The high priest would present this blood sacrifice once a year during this special time and God would cover the sins of the people for one year. And that sacrifice would have to be made over and over and over and over and over again. But God's plan was, I don't want to just cover your sin. I want to wash your sin away. I want to remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. That's my plan. But until God implemented his plan through Christ, we were all, especially non-Jewish people, we were in a perpetual state of total separation from God here and in eternity. The Bible says that the soul that sins shall die. Think about that. Think of 
the sentence that is on you? What would you do if you went to court and you found out that you were handed the death penalty and there was no escaping it? Well, each one of us was handed an eternal death penalty simply because we had sin in our heart, little or big. I know this sounds a little sad, but can I tell you this? You can't appreciate the cure unless you realize your sickness. Does that make sense? So this is, the, this is the problem. It's hard to preach mercy if you don't couple it with justice and judgment. What good does it, Jesus loves you. Jesus, lo of course he loves you. Jesus is your answer. Answer to what? Jesus will save you. Save me from what? I don't need to be saved. I got, my heat is on. My lights are on. I'm rolling a, a nice whip. I got 20 inch spinners. I got money in the bank. You know what I'm saying? I just ate steak last night. I'm not sick, ain't been sick in four years. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm good. I don't need saving. Oh, okay. So, oh, the, the reason the saving message and the love message isn't making sense is because you don't know the death penalty you're under and the eternal sickness that no one has the cure for except God himself. And until you understand that we are sick with sin, we don't understand how important the cure is, right? It says the soul that sins shall die. Okay, well, if that's the penalty, and Romans says that the wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life, well then, okay, what's the big deal? Everybody's gonna die anyways. I've actually heard this before. Okay, if the soul that sins dies, then it will be paid upon my death, and last I checked, 100% of people that are born will die. And so it's paid. So shouldn't I go to heaven? That's great if the word death here meant physically, but it doesn't mean physically. This is talking about the second death. It's talking about a different death, hell, and ultimately the lake of fire. Let me, little side note here. I was thinking about this, like, have you ever been around people like, they want to make heaven sound way more awesome than the Bible says it is, and so they just make stuff up? Or they, they want to make hell sound like way worse than the Bible is, and so they just add their own commentary to scare their children? Listen, I've, okay, maybe you haven't seen this. I've been around ministry a long time, and I've seen this a lot. I've seen moms and pastors and parents and believers do this. I've seen the mom that's trying to talk to their kids or the little school teacher trying to talk to their kids and oh yes heaven is gonna be fabulous <laughs> there's special animals in heaven in fact there's an animal kids in heaven it's called the puppy bunny and it's the softest animal in all the kingdom it's got a puppy head on one side of its body and a bunny head on the other side of its body it's kind of like the cartoon cat dog and Right? I'm like, no! Mom from North Dakota? That is terrifying. That is terrifying. Don't ruin heaven for me. Where does that animal go to the bathroom? Anyways, just, I'm just saying, like, but, but, but you see this, like, listen, you can't make heaven better than the Bible. Whatever heaven is, it's, it's far greater than we can ever imagine. I do believe, personally, I think the Spirit told me this. I can't find it in Scripture yet, but I think there's going to be KFC trees and orchards in heaven. There's going to be original recipe trees, some extra crispy trees. You'd be going through the orchard and like just meat, like greasy meat will be growing off of branches. The sap will be gravy. It's just what it's going to be, right? Right? 
You know, or you get the people, you know, just trying to scare people into hell. And instead of just preaching what the text says, they're like, you know, you better repent. You better turn to God because in, in hell, there's going to be evil Oompa Loompas with shark teeth and bad breath. And they're going to chase you day and night. There's going to be Dallas Cowboy logos everywhere. You don't want to go to hell. You don't want to end up there, son. You need to hit your knees. Listen. Hell is as bad as it's going to get in heaven or eternity is as amazing as we don't need to add to it. It's hopeful and it's sobering enough, whichever side you're on. But here's what the Bible says about the death that you're going to die. The death that scripture talks about for those who have not found the cure. And again, I, I don't want to assume that everybody here is saved. Listen, the Bible says in Matthew 7, 21, check it out. There are being a lot of people who show up to church every Sunday that might not make heaven their home. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do many wonders and, and miracles and signs in your name? You know, and Jesus will say to them, depart from me for I never knew you. That's scary. They're saying, Lord, Lord, and they've actually been doing ministry. Okay, and so there's that. So we have to say, God, have I really surrendered and put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And have I, have I, have I received the, the imputed righteousness that he gives me through his death? Have I truly embraced that? And am I really walking with Jesus? Because here's what it says. And this is the sobering part. And then, and then the, the, the message gets amazing. Revelation 20, 11 through 15, it says, Then I saw a great white throne and the one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small. This great and small means people that were important in this life and people who were unimportant. Listen, celebrities and no names alike will stand before the great white throne judgment. You know, this judgment here, no true believer, no saved person will stand at the great white throne judgment. This is the judgment of those who are going to be put and cast into eternal damnation. But they're going to get a fair trial. It's not going to be a surprise because God is going to judge them accordingly. And he's going to play back why they didn't make heaven their home. This is so sobering. Why do we do Alpha? Why do we encourage you to invite your friends to church? Not so we can scare the H-E double hockey sticks out of them, but kind of so we can do that, right? No, so that we can draw them to the love of Christ because this is the destination for those who have not received Christ. And God would have no one perish. The Bible says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And he does his reaching out through his church. This is why we say we've got to get beyond just receiving and, 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 and absorbing and coming for a meal. You need that. But listen, unless we're out trying to bring someone else to Christ, there's a massive part of our Christian experience and expression that's missing. Can I get an amen in here today? You're here because somebody ministered to you. So it says... And they were standing before the throne and the books were open and one of them was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their deeds. Notice that these people that have not received Christ 
and the benefit of his death, they're not judged according to the righteousness of Christ that he gave them. They will actually stand and be judged on their own righteousness and there are none righteous, no, not one. So as good as this person is or these people are, no one can stand and meet the requirement of God. They will all stand guilty because without the blood of Jesus Christ, our sins are not washed away. This is a scary and sobering reality. And it said this, as, uh, as recorded in the books, the sea gave up its dead and death and Hades gave up their dead, or the grave, and each one was judged according to his deeds. So there are none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then it says this, and then death and Hades, well, what does it mean to die? When someone passes from this life and they're saved, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But when someone passes from this life and they're not saved, they don't go right to the lake of fire. There's a day for that. But they do go to a place of suffering while they await the judgment. And it says, and death, the place that people go, and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone was found whose name was not written in the Lamb's book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. So those who died in their sin, they die physically and then they die spiritually. First death, second death. It's the old saying that those who are born once will have to die twice. But those who are born twice will only die once. What does it mean? If I'm born physically, but I'm never born again spiritually, I will experience two deaths. But if I'm born physically and then I come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ when a pastor or a friend or a parent shares the gospel like this and I respond and I say, Jesus, I need you. I confess I'm a sinner and I put my trust in you. The Bible says that you are born again by the Spirit. You die to the old and it gives you brand new life. You're born twice so you will only die once. You'll never face the second death. This is the reality of scripture. What is the lake of fire? It says, uh, if we back up a few verses in verse 10, it says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur into which the beast and the false prophet had already been thrown. And here's what it's all about. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. Well, God is loving, right? He is, but he's just. And this is another topic of like, how could a loving God do this? We'll get into that later. But, but listen, there, there's, no, there's no way out. There's no redo. It's crazy to think that what we do with this life, you guys, what, how we respond to God with the short time we have will literally determine our eternity. This is the testing period. And, and, and listen, we're all pulled. We're all distracted. And listen, we all fall short. We all sin, and for those who are in Christ, this is the blessing of the fact that it's not my own righteousness, that he washes me and cleanses me, and he works with me even though I still make mistakes. No, it's not a license to sin, but it's, this, it's the security of knowing that when he's connected me to salvation, the same grace that saved me is the same grace that keeps me, amen? Can you give him praise for that? Let's transition to the conflict 
the Christ and the cure. This is a scripture that makes it look like Jesus broke God's law. So what do you do with this? This is like atheist fist bump time because it looks like Jesus' death actually did nothing. This is a law that God gave in Deuteronomy 24, 16. And before I read it, can I say this? How many know that God cannot break his own law and he cannot contradict his own word? Raise your hand if you believe that. Listen, my word will not come back void, but it will accomplish what I've sent it for to accomplish. God's word is perfect. And if he breaks his word, that makes him a liar and God cannot lie. So what do you do with this then? It says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So here's what's going on. God is declaring that no one is allowed to die for anyone else's sin. Uh Uh-oh. What did Jesus do? We read it, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. It says that Jesus Christ died for our sin. So no individual, according to God's law, is allowed to die for another individual. So it looks like Jesus broke the law of God or his death really didn't matter. It means that it was nullified because God will not accept it if my son is sinning and I give my life for him. God's like, doesn't work, can't do it. Each one will pay for his own sin. Each one will die for his own sin. Will not accept one individual dying for another. So sit on that for just one second. Think about that. How does Jesus then deal with our incurable sin? Because we couldn't live righteous. Let's jump back thousands of years before Jesus and look at, first of all, the requirement. What's the requirement for the sacrifice that would be acceptable to wash sin away? The very brief version, it starts at the Passover. The, the, the Hebrew people are about to leave Egypt. The death angel is about to pass over. And God says to his people, I want you to take a lamb. And I want it to have this criteria. And I won't go through all of it. But number one, it's got to be a male lamb. The firstborn of the flock of that year. That lamb has to be inspected for four days, right? It has to be watched. And it has to make sure there's no spot, no blemish, no defect. It has to be perfect. It has to be without any flaw whatsoever. And after it's watched and inspected for four days, then it needs to be sacrificed. It needs to be sacrificed at the ninth hour, which was 3 p.m. This is clear in the law. You can look this up. This was written in the pages of scripture before Jesus ever came on the scene. This would be what God would accept. And then he said, take the blood of the lamb, put it on the doorpost of your home. The death angel will pass over on this night. The 10th plague will fall. And wherever he sees the blood of this chosen lamb on the doorpost of the home, death will not touch that home, but I will kill the firstborn in all of Egypt where I don't see the blood. Jesus Christ was the firstborn among many brethren, right? He was put on 
trial or inspected for flaws or sin for four days, starting with when he came into the temple and he kicked out the money changers. It was the religious leaders, then it was the Pharisees, then it was the Sadducees who were trying to find fault, trying to find some way that he was committing sin or blasphemy. Then he went to Pilate. Pilate took him to Herod. He ended up in front of Caiaphas. Caiaphas tried to find sin. And then Pilate finally comes out and he, and he gives this decree and he says, I come before you and I declare I can find no fault in him or no guilt in him. John 9, 4. Meaning that Jesus Christ met the criteria to be our spotless, sinless lamb of God's sacrifice who was not covering the sins of the people for a year like animal's blood, but he went into a greater tabernacle, into the heavenly mercy seat. He presented his own blood as the sacrifice, as the high priest, and he sprinkled his own blood seven times on the mercy seat so that our sins would be washed away forever if we put our faith in him. How many are thankful for the sacrifice we have in Jesus? Not only that, but it says that he was hung on the cross at 9 a.m., but he died at 3 p.m. at the hour of prayer when they would sacrifice that lamb. He fulfills all of this, but here's the problem. It still doesn't deal with the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins and no one can die for anybody else's sin. Now, this is so powerful. And if, if you've been sleeping this whole time or you've been on Facebook, okay, <laughs> Now's your time to, to check in, okay? Because this could be a game changer for you. So how then did Jesus take care of our sin? Or 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Christ was without sin, but for our sake, God made him share our sin, or he became sin, in order that in union with him, we might share in, his, in the righteousness of God. Okay, so what does this mean? Here's the miracle right here. Ephesians 2, 15. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which means we were enemies of God, and in his flesh he abolished the state of animosity and division we had with God or separation, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might take the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile both in one body— to God through the cross, by it having put to death enmity. Look at this, Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Who's the church? Everybody say me. me. You are the church. So here's what Jesus did. Jesus, knowing he could not as an individual die for another individual, he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to create a whole new individual, a new man. Jesus comes as the second Adam or the last Adam. And when he dies on the cross, he puts to death that race of people in himself. He includes you and I on the cross in his death. He pays for our sins. He resurrects from the dead as the new man or the second man. He's the head of a new race. And now he doesn't call you individuals. What does he do? He calls you his very own body. Each man must pay for the sins committed in their own body, not for somebody else. 
So what if he makes you the toe and he makes me the elbow and he makes him the gizzard and he makes you the, the, the arm and he makes you the leg and we're all members of one body. He now stands before God as the head of the body who happened to commit sin and that sin when he brought it to himself happened to get him crucified because our sin put on the innocent lamb caused us to receive forgiveness, him to receive the wrath. And when he raised from the dead and when we're baptized and we put our faith in him, we are now joined as his body. And God looks at us as one in Christ. Therefore, his death is imputed to us as the punishment that was due and we get the deliverance, the forgiveness and the pardon. Can you, can you give Jesus a big amen? That's why as the body of Christ, and, and, and we got to fight to love one another, this is why it's so important. Like, there's a scripture that says, you know, if you sleep with a prostitute, you're literally joining the body of Christ to a harlot. He's saying, you're, we're so inseparable that to go do this, that, or the other, you're actually joining Jesus because you are part of his actual body. That's the only way that the forgiveness can be granted. But if I stand on my own outside of him, I cannot receive the forgiveness. Ephesians 5, 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is the savior of. Galatians 3, 26 and 28 through 28. For in Christ Jesus, everybody say in Christ. In Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. All and all were made to drink of one spirit. Colossians 3, 3. For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And lastly, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I want to give you an opportunity right now. And I just want you to bow your head and close your eyes. And we're going to receive communion and close with one more song. You might be here today. And I don't want to assume that everyone here is has an assurance that you are right with him. Listen, the Bible says that anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. In the book of Acts, Peter preaches his first sermon. He, he preaches, save yourself from this wicked and corrupt generation. Repent, turn from your sin and believe on him. And Jesus Christ is saying, listen, there's only one way, I'm the door. There's only one way to eternal life. If you pass from this life and you stand on your own good works, you will be standing at the white throne judgment of God and your good works will not cut it. But if you stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and you let him forgive you and you join yourself to him and you say, Lord, I'm ready to surrender my life. I'm ready to be born again by committing to you. If that's you and you say today, Dave, you know, maybe you've never really made that decision. You've never committed 
to believe on Jesus as the way. Or maybe you're in here today and you feel like, man, I've gone astray and I've just been living for myself and man, I, I need to get back into the vine and I need to rededicate today. If either of those are you, without being afraid or ashamed or embarrassed, I just want you to hold your hand up and say, today I wanna make that commitment to follow Jesus. Come on, hold them up high. Hold them up high. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Praise God. Praise God. Right over here. Right here. Anyone else? You want to make a commitment to follow Jesus? Praise God. Thank you for those hands. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Thank you guys so much for your, your courage to surrender. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And then um, Mark, who is one of our elders here, He's going to lead us in communion. And uh, if you need communion elements, if you don't have one of these, why don't you hold your hand up as well? If you don't have one of these, keep them up high and, and our ushers will come and find you. But why don't you say this prayer after me, especially if you raised your hand and responded. Say this, say, Lord Jesus. Come on, say it, say it out loud, everyone. Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. I confess. That I've, that I've sinned and my sin separates me from you. But I acknowledge that Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive me of all my sin. And Jesus rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I repent. I confess. And I receive forgiveness. Wash me cleanse me and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Put your desires in me and give me a new heart. So right now, I declare my old life is gone. My past is forgiven. I am a new creation. I am born again. I'm going to heaven. Satan, stay out of my life. You don't own me. I belong to Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Mark, you want to come on up and then stay with us, guys. When Mark closes, we're going to sing one more song. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, church. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I received of the Lord that which I also passed on to you. And he goes on to talk about the body and the blood. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance is an interesting thing to a human being. How do we remember something that's gone away? I know when my mom passed away some two dozen years ago, I had to physically take a picture and hold it up in front of me and memorize the picture because I didn't want to forget her. And then another dozen years later or so when my dad passed away, I found a picture of them uh, holding golf clubs, which is their favorite love other than the Lord, uh, leaning against each other in Kanapali, and I have that in a room in our home, and that's how I remember my mom and dad, but that's a picture that stays in our head. So the remembrance that you have of Jesus, some people it's probably a manger scene, other people maybe it's a, a young boy arguing with the scholars at the temple. It might be Jesus at the wedding of Canaan where uh, he turned the water into wine. It might be him walking the sandy 
sandy paths, uh, ministering to people that might be on the mount, it might be on the cross, it might be with his hands outstretched saying, come, come. But take a picture of Jesus in your mind and we walk down this road together. So take the bread. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Thank you, Jesus, for your body. Thank you for that which you did for us, for which Dave has just so wonderfully described to us. Why did he die? Your physical body you gave up for us. Yes, God. And we're doing this in remembrance of you. Thank you, Jesus. Partake together. Thank you, Jesus. In the same manner, he also took the cup, it says. Uh, the cup is called the cup of the new covenant, the relationship that is born through the shedding of blood, through becoming the one body as we've been taught about. And it's a beautiful thing. So Lord Jesus, we take this cup representing your blood. And we do this in remembrance of you, all that you have done for us, all that you are going to do for us, and all that we were ever meant to be, we have in this new communion, this new relationship, this new covenant that we have with you. Thank you so much for all that you've done for us now. In thy name we pray, amen.